Welcome to this message from Shofar Christian Church. May you experience God's grace as you listen to His Word being preached. For a few weeks now we've been speaking about uh, the well-known parable in Luke chapter 15 of the so-called prodigal son. And um, I'm just going to read um, that to you again. And I, w- I want you to just sit back and uh, enjoy, just enjoy the story. Because it's, it's, it's not only um, profound truth, but it's also just a powerful, beautiful story that Jesus tells. Uh, now, you know that parables were uh, fictional stories that Jesus made up, earthly stories with a heavenly, that teach a heavenly lesson, a heavenly truth. Um, and that he used to teach truth to, to us. So listen to this. I'm just going to read the first three verses and then from verse 11. It says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear him. That's to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and teachers of the law muttered, uh, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. And then he tells what seems to be three parables to us. He tells uh, the parable of the lost sheep and the lost coin, the lost there's a sheep that gets lost, the shepherd goes out to search for the sheep, brings back the sheep and, and celebrates. And uh, a coin gets lost, the woman sweeps out her house to search for the coin, finds the coin and then celebrates uh, with, her, with her neighbors and friends. So you have all the same elements. And then he tells this story about the lost son. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got uh, together all he had, set off to a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. The King James used to say prodigal living, you know, reckless, wild living. That's why it's called the parable of the prodigal son. Verse 14 continues. After he had spent everything, <clears throat> there was a severe famine in the whole country. And he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country uh, who sent him to his field to feed pigs. Um, and he longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let us have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and he's alive again. He was lost and he's found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the oldest son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out 
and pleaded with him. But he answered, look, all these years I've, I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. I, I was talking to um, someone two weeks ago when I preached on this and, and, and he was also saying, I don't a young boy. He's a single gentleman, unmarried. <laughs> That's all he wants. He also wants, wants a, a young boy. Verse <laughs> um, 30 says, But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad, because this brother of yours was dead and he's alive again. He was lost and he's found. His Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you, Lord, that your word is living and powerful, Lord. Thank you, Lord, that this is not just a story, Lord, but that this is our story. This is not just how you... Our father treated two sons, Lord, but this is how you treat us. And we just come, Lord, and we just want to thank you, Lord, for your grace. We want to thank you for your word, and we want to pray, Holy Spirit, that you'll come and teach us from your word. Instruct us. Touch our hearts again. Thank you that you are here. Thank you that we could experience you so, in such a precious way during, during the time of singing and worship, Lord. And we thank you that you are here and that you are teaching us in Jesus' name. Amen. Now it's um, amazing how Jesus in this parable takes one of the most powerful and pervasive themes of the Bible and works it into this short little parable. <clears throat> and that's a theme of exile, displacement, alienation. I mean, if you think right at the beginning, God created Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, the place they could call their home, where they felt at home, where all their needs were, needs were met. Wonderful place, more amazing than we can imagine. And then what happened? They sinned, and they have to leave the garden. They're displaced. They're, in a sense, in exile. They're, in a sense, in exile. And I, and I heard a quote by a, 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 a lady who, who's, uh, who was part of the, the Jewish Holocaust, and she was saying <clears throat> how they, they were taken to the, to the camps the, during the Second World War, during the Holocaust. And she was saying how, you know, she said, since Adam and Eve, all of us feel a sense of exile. All of us feel a sense of exile. I don't know if you've ever sensed it. You know, sometimes I get this feeling of not quite fitting in. Not, not quite... You know, just something's wrong. You can't put your finger on it. You don't know what's wrong, but you, but you have this feeling of, of longing for something that seems to be missing, but you don't know quite what it is. I don't know. Am I, am I the only one who feels that? I think all of us feel that. I think since Adam and Eve got kicked out of the garden, all of us feel that. It's a sense of homesickness. A sense of not being home. A sense of not quite being where we belong and not quite experiencing what we ought to. 
And, and we have the sense that, that, that what we're experiencing, th- there's good and there's bad. There's good and there's evil. There's, there, there are, there are, there's beauty and there's brokenness. And, and we have a sense that, that we were created for more than this. That, and, and there's this longing for more. There's this longing for more. And, and now and then, we, we, we have a sense of homecoming. We have a sense of, 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 of being amongst friends or family that sort of overshadows that longing that, that we all feel, that sense of displacement and exile that we all feel, but only for a while. And then that feeling comes back with a vengeance. It comes back with a vengeance. And, and sometimes we think back to, to, especially as we get older, you know, I'm, I'm over 40 already, so you know, I can talk about becoming older already. <laughs> but as, as you become older, you have the sense of longing back sometimes if you had a, 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 you know, a happy childhood to your, to your childhood and, and, and how things were then, you know, carefree and, 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 and you were home and, 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 and you know, it's, everything just felt happy. And especially maybe, maybe there was this holiday spot at the sea that you went to. You know, and for maybe a couple of weeks, everything just felt right. And, and you have the sense of longing for that, but even that isn't quite it. You know, and, and then sometimes, maybe some of you have had the experience, you go back to that holiday place. Years later, decades later, you know, 20 years later, and, and then you're disappointed. And it's like, this is not what I remember. It's, it's, not, it's not right. It's not the same. And, and the reality is, I love the way C.S. Lewis says it. I just I brought a, one of my C.S. Lewis books along. I want to read it to you because he says it so beautifully. He says, in speaking of this desire for our own far-off country, our own home, in a sense, which we find in ourselves even now, I feel a certain shyness. I'm almost committing an indecency. I'm trying to rip open the inconsolable secret in each one of you. The secret which hurts so much that you take your revenge by calling it names like nostalgia and romanticism and adolescence. The secret also which pierces with such sweetness that when in very intimate conversation the mention of it comes, uh, becomes imminent, we grow awkward and affect to laugh at ourselves. The secret we cannot hide and cannot tell, though we desire to do both. We cannot tell it because it is a desire for something we have never actually, that has never actually appeared in our experience. We cannot hide it because our experience, our experience is constantly suggesting it and we betray ourselves like lovers at the mention of a name. Our commonest expedient is to call it beauty and behave as if that settles the matter. Wordsworth, Wordsworth's experience was to identify it with certain moments in his own past, like we often do, you know. Certain moments, maybe that holiday place, maybe that, ho- that, that moment, you, you sort of think, that's what I'm longing for. But then listen to what um, Lewis says. He says, but all this is a cheat. If Wordsworth had gone back to those moments in the past, he would not have found the thing itself, but only a reminder of it. What he remembered would turn out to be itself a remembering. Wow. Wow. Even if he could, even you could, if you could travel back in time to that very spot, that holiday spot at the sea, you know, that time in your family, even that would be a disappointment because it would only be itself a memory. A memory of what? 
the books and music in which we thought beauty was located will betray us if we trust in them. It was not in them. It, was only, it only came through them. And what came through them was longing. These things, the beauty, the memory of our own past are, thing, are, are good images of what we really desire. But if we are mistaken, if they, if they are mistaken, the things in our past, the, the good things that we experience, if they are mistaken for the thing itself, they turn into dumb idols breaking the hearts of their worshippers. For they are not the thing itself. They are only the scent of a flower we have not yet found, the echo of a tune we have not yet heard, news from a country we have never yet visited. Homesickness. That feeling of homesickness, that feeling of longing for something we can't quite put our finger on, and something that everything in our experience points towards, but nothing in our experience actually fulfills. Actually fulfills. And throughout the Bible, we, we see that, that, that exile which, which creates that longing. We see it in Adam and Eve when they kicked out of the garden, and we feel it as well. We see it in, in Israel when they're in, in exile in, ex, in, 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 in Egypt. And God brings them out of Egypt to himself. And then they're in the promised land. And they think, okay, the promised land. If, we, if we're in the promised land, then we'll feel at home. Then we'll have that rest. Then we'll have that sense of homecoming that we long for. And they're there and they're not satisfied. They're disappointed. So much so that they eventually turn to idols again. And God takes them again in exile into Babylon under Nebuchadnezzar. And they're devastated. And they think, if only we can get free from this, this oppression, you know, we're slaves again, just like we were in Egypt. If we only we can get free from this oppression. And 70 years later, God takes them back to the promised land. You know, a new exodus. And they're back home and they think, if we can only get to the promised land, they get to the promised land. And once again, it's a letdown. It's a disappointment. And in the time of Jesus... After the return from exile, the Israelites are living in their own country, feeling as like exiles because they're ruled by the, by the Romans. And what they thought, living in their own land, living in their own country, what they thought would satisfy that sense of homesickness, never actually did. And we tr- all, we're constantly trying to recreate the Garden of Eden to get back to it, you know. That's why we go on holiday to all these nice places. We want to go back to the garden. But even when we get there, it's empty. It doesn't fulfill that sense of homesickness. Why? In Ecclesiastes uh, 3 verse 11 it says, God has made everything beautiful in its time. And then it says he has placed eternity in the heart of man. Yet in such a way that we can't understand the end from the beginning. (laughs) He's placed eternity in our hearts. And I want to submit to you that sense of longing that we feel. That sense of longing which which, which our experience constantly touches and encourages. Is an experience of longing for something we have not yet experienced. But that eternity that God has placed in our hearts. It's a sense of longing for a home we have never been to. But that we were made for all along. That we were made for all along. And we see that sense of 
homesickness here in this parable. The younger brother, he thinks that all kinds of other stuff can fulfill that longing. He goes off to a far country. He ends up in the pigsty. And then he comes to his senses and he says, I need to go back home. I need to go to my father. I need to go to my father. You see, he realizes what eventually, as you, if you read scripture intelligently and with a, with a keen eye, which you eventually pick up, it was not so much the garden which made Adam and Eve feel at home, but the presence of God with him in the garden. It was not so much the promised land which made the Israelites feel at home, but the presence of God in the promised land amongst them. The presence of God which departed when they were taken into exile. And that is what we're longing for, the presence of our Father, the presence of our God. And he goes back because he realizes, I'm homesick, I need the Father. That's what, I, that's what I'm longing for. And we see, we understand the homesickness and the exile of the younger brother. He's away. He went to a far country, the far country of rebellion. But we don't always understand the homesickness of the older brother. We don't always understand. We understand the homesickness, you know, in the far country of rebellion. But we don't always understand the homesickness in the field of religion. You see, the physical distance between the older brother and the father was much smaller. But the relational distance was just as big. Just as big as between the younger brother when he was in the pigsty and the father. And in other words, we're not just talking about physical displacement. We're talking about relational alienation. Relational distance. That separates us. And we see there are two sons here that are alienated. Two sons, in a sense, that are in exile. One is in exile far from the home, in the far country, of rebellion. And one is in exile very close to home, in the field of religion, working, trying to earn his own salvation. But both are in exile. Now, what's the, what's the solution to it? What's the solution to the situation? Obviously, the solution is to come home. But most commentators who've read this parable have sort of been a bit confused by it because the younger brother comes home and the father forgives him and receives him back and blesses him and celebrates him without seeming to require any form of atonement. There's no sacrifice, seemingly. Where's the sacrifice? Where's the price being, you know, being paid? And we know from Scripture, I mean, the whole of the Old Testament is full of this whole sacrificial system. Every time there is sin, there has to be a sacrifice. There has to be atonement, but there seems to be no atonement. What's going on? What's going on here? Because the reality is whenever you forgive someone, you have to sacrifice. Whenever someone wrongs you, they actually rob you. They might rob you physically and wrong you in that way. Or they might rob you of, of your reputation by slandering you or gossiping about you. Or they might rob you of peace you know, by hurting you on the inside. They, every time someone wrongs you, they actually rob you. And there are two ways to deal with that. 
You can either require them to pay back what they've robbed you in some way or another, or you can take the loss and forgive them. In other words, all forgiveness requires that there be some sacrifice, that someone be robbed, in a sense, that someone take that debt upon, absorb that debt in themselves. But, but where, where is it in, the, in, the, in this parable? It doesn't seem to be there. Ah, but it is. You see, if we read the parable and don't see it, then we're not reading the parable correctly. You see, there is a price to pay. And we see the one paying the price being very unhappy about it. The older brother. You see, the younger brother comes back. Remember we spoke about the law of primogeniture, where the, the eldest son gets double, a double portion of the inheritance, twice as much as everyone else. So the, 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 there were two sons. The younger brother got one third. The, the two thirds that was left was the older brothers. So here comes the younger brother running back, you know, smelling of pigsty. The father throws his arms around him, forgives him, and then he gives him a robe, which, by the way, belongs to the older brother. And then he gives him a ring, which, by the way, belongs to the older brother. And then he gives him sandals, which, by the way, belongs to the older brother. And then he slaughters a fattened calf for him to celebrate him, which, by the way, also belongs to the older brother. Because everything that is left belongs to the older brother. And the father says that. You're always with me. All that I have is yours. He wasn't exaggerating when he said that. Literally, everything he had was now the older brother's. The older brother had to pay the price. But this older brother was upset. He didn't want to pay that price. He didn't want to pay that price. He was angry because he had to pay this price for this unworthy brother of his. In fact, he didn't want to call him my brother. He said, your son. When this son of yours comes back, the father corrects him at the end and says, no, you, this brother of yours has come back, you know. He was dead and he's alive, he's lost and he's found, you know. He doesn't even want to associate with him. He's so disgusted with him. He didn't want to pay the price. And he was the one who was supposed to pay the price. Now backtrack a bit to the beginning of the chapter. Remember the historic context? The, 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 the sinners and tax collectors are coming to Jesus and they're hearing Jesus. The Pharisees, they're the younger brothers, hearing Jesus. The Pharisees and the scribes, they grumbling and saying he eats with tax collectors and sinners and, and he receives them. And then Jesus tells them this parable. And, and notice in verse 3 it says this parable, singular. And he tells a parable of the lost sheep. Now, notice the pattern here, threefold pattern. Something is lost, lost sheep. Shepherd goes out to find them, searching. Brings it back and celebrates, celebration. There's a coin lost. The woman sweeps out the house to search for it. She finds it and there's a celebration. Third parable, there's a son who is lost. Hang on, no one goes out to search for him. But there is a celebration. What's going on here? Why did Jesus tell those first two parables? He told those first two parables to set up the third one. To have us ask the question, who should have gone out to search for the younger brother? To us, that might not be obvious, but in their culture, it would have been completely obvious. 
The older brother was supposed to go out and search for his younger brother. Remember what, what happened when um, Kish, uh, King Saul, the first king of Israel, his father Kish, when his donkeys were lost, he sent out his son, Saul, to go and search for them. The oldest son in the family. You will go out and search. There's a story that um, was written up in, in Time magazine. In fact, bring up the next slide. I think it's up there. Just, there we go. During the w- war in Vietnam, uh, Army Lieutenant Daniel Dawson's reconnaissance plane went down over the Viet Cong jungle. When his brother Donald heard the report, he sold everything he had, left his wife with $20, and bought passage to Vietnam. There he equipped himself with the soldier's gear and wandered through the guerrilla-controlled jungle looking for his brother, his younger brother. He carried leaflets picturing the plane and uh, describing uh, in Vietnamese the reward for news of the missing pilot. He became known as the brother of the pilot. A Life magazine reporter described his perilous search. He became this legend. The the Americans and the Vietnamese, he he actually survived. No one killed him because everyone was just so in awe of what this guy was doing. He had come so far to search for his missing brother. This older brother, and he became known as the brother of the pilot. Almost this mythical figure. And that's what the older brother should have been. And I submit to you that the older brother actually knew where his younger brother was. Why do I say that? In the beginning, it says, the younger brother went to a far country and wasted his father's inheritance with wild living. But it doesn't explain what the wild living is. But when the older brother speaks to his father, he says... When this son of yours who has wasted your inheritance on prostitutes. How does he know that? How does he know that? He probably did go out. And he probably knew. He probably saw his brother. He probably saw him, you know, philandering with the prostitutes and hanging out with the pimps. And he was probably so disgusted at this younger brother that instead of rescuing him, he went back home. And Jesus is saying, you Pharisees are like that. You see, why Jesus didn't insert the one who searches in the final parable, the parable of the lost son, is because he wanted to insert the Pharisees there so they could see themselves. But he wanted to use them as a foil for himself. You know what a foil is? It's it's, it's someone or something that you put in to contrast with something else, to, to basically emphasize or enhance the qualities of something else. When we look at the older brother in the parable, Jesus wants us to say, thank God that we don't have an older brother like that. Thank God that we have an older brother who never mind going from America to Vietnam to search for us. He came from heaven to earth to search for us. Thank God that we don't have an older brother that is angry because we are so sinful and fallen because we've wasted our inheritance. Thank you that we have an older brother who was willing to pay the price to share his inheritance with us. All that I have is yours. That is true for Jesus. Thank you that we have an older brother who instead of staying home and complaining about the younger brother who has left him with more work, has come to seek and save the lost. Thank you that we have Jesus 
as our older brother and not the Pharisees. Thank you that he was willing to pay the price. Thank you that, that the price for homecoming, that he's willing to pay that. You see, Jesus left home in heaven to come down to earth, to pay the price so that we can go to be home with his father. Jesus says, foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. While he was here on earth, he was a restless wanderer with no real home to call his own. Why? He was homeless. Why? Why was he homeless? So he could pay the price for us to go home and to experience home again. He was willing to pay that price for homecoming, for us to be able to go home. So, the result is that the father celebrates the younger brother. And, 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 and that's, that's when this homecoming really hits home. Every true homecoming must happen with a celebration and with a meal, right? I mean, then you really feel, when you go and visit your parents, and, 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 you, and you know, over the holiday and so on, when you have that, that first meal together, then you feel, okay, now... <laughs> Now I'm home again, you know. And a father celebrates with four things. He gives him a new robe. I love the way the father interrupts the younger brother. Remember the younger brother rehearsed his repentance? I'll tell my father, I've sinned against heaven against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your servants. Then he comes to his father and says, I've sinned against heaven against you. I'm no longer worthy to be a son. But before he can say, make me like one of your servants, the father says, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. The father just interrupts him, you know, interrupts his repentance, his realist repentance. The father doesn't want him to be a servant. The father makes him a son again. The father makes him a son again. He brings that robe and puts it on him. The older brother's robe. The older brother's robe. And that robe spoke, speaks of identity. Aren't we glad that our older brother, Jesus, was willing to share his robe of identity with us? Put his robe on us so that we look like him. So that when the Father sees us, looks at us, he sees Jesus. When he looks at our, us, he doesn't see our broken record and uh, you know, sinful record and our pigsty uncleanness. But he sees our older brother's perfect robe of righteousness. Then he says, put a ring on his finger. And the ring was a sign of authority. In those days, you didn't sign documents. You know, you, you dripped some, some wax on a document or on a letter or something, and then you sealed it with a signet ring. So it spoke of authority. And, you know, the signet ring, the insignia, was the actual crest of, of the family. And, and this, this one to me is, is probably one of the most powerful. Um, Paul in the New Testament, maybe I should actually read that to you, in, in Ephesians chapter 1. Let me just read you one or two verses there. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13 and 14. It says, And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. 
It's when you put on the robe, you know, included in Christ, taken up in his identity. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Now, when he put that ring on his finger, he's saying, far from receiving you back as a servant, I'm, I'm receiving you as a son. I'm giving you a new inheritance. I'm sharing your brother's inheritance with you again. You're now a son. You can act on my behalf. And the ring there, why well, I read this about the Holy Spirit, is he's the seal. It says that the guarantee, the seal guaranteeing our inheritance. The word used there is arabon which can mean um, seal or guarantee or pledge. It's like when, when you give a, a wedding ring or, or an engagement ring, you give a pledge of your love. And the Holy Spirit is that, in a sense, that engagement ring, that pledge, guaranteeing the full inheritance. The Holy Spirit is the biggest part of Jesus' inheritance, the most important part of his inheritance that he shared with us. To make us God's children, to make us God's son. And then he put sandals on his feet, you know, representing, you know, a new destiny. Yes, you wandered off to a far country, but now you're brought home and now you've given a new destiny. And then he says, slaughter the fattened calf. Let us celebrate. Let us celebrate your homecoming. And you have, have to celebrate a homecoming with a meal. And that's why Jesus, later in this same gospel, gospel of Luke chapter 22, he gives a meal. Communion meal, based on the Passover meal. And here's the interesting thing about this homecoming meal. The Passover meal, which has now become the communion, with um, the broken bread representing his broken body and the, and, and the wine representing the cup representing his blood. Here's the interesting thing. Did the Israelites celebrate the Passover when they got to the promised land? Did they only start celebrating the Passover then? When did they start celebrating the Passover? Right at the beginning of the journey. Right at the beginning of the journey. In other words, Passover and communion is a homecoming meal which you celebrate at the beginning of the journey already. As though you've already come home. You celebrate the end right at the beginning. You celebrate your homecoming at the start of the journey. And that's what we're going to do today. I'm going to ask that um, the ushers quickly hand out the elements of the communion. And what I want us to do is um, just break up into little groups. And I've, there's some, some bread. And I want us just to break bread together. But I, what I want us to do is I want us to feel, feel the full weight of this communion celebration, this homecoming meal. And I want us to celebrate it together. I want you to think about this. I want you to think about your true older brother and what he did for you. What a high price he paid. How he was alienated from the Father so that you could be reconciled to the Father. How he had to say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that God can say to us, you are my beloved sons and daughters in whom I'm well pleased. Think of the incredible price he paid. Think of the incredible distance he came. How he wandered on earth as a, you know, basically being homeless so that we can come home. And then I want you 
to realize that the only way, the only antidote for the sense of homesickness that we all feel is the homecoming which only our older brother can provide for us. It's the homecoming that only our older brother can provide for us. And let us celebrate that homecoming now while we're still on the journey. Let's not wait until we get there. Let's celebrate it as though it's already happened. Because by God's grace, it has. You see, um, this meal that the Lord has given us to celebrate our homecoming is not... It's not something you can do alone. So you need a community. You need a community. That's what family is about. And um, I, I just want to encourage you. You know, there are so many people, so many people out there looking for a sense of belonging, looking to try and cure their homesickness, their feeling of homesickness. And they cannot do it apart from the church community. There are many people who try to, especially in our Western individualism, we try and, and be happy and satisfied outside of this, outside of this community, but you can't. This is the Father's family. This is where the Father's presence is. But then I think also just a challenge being thrown out to us by Jesus is, you know, are, are we going to be like that older brother? When those people who have such a deep sense of homesickness and a longing to belong somewhere, when they come in, they're going to be younger brothers. They're going to be people who, are, who have been hanging out with pimps and prostitutes, just like, like we were. They're going to be people who are into all kinds of idolatry. They're going to be, are, are we going to be harden our hearts in anger like the older brother and sort of push them out and be, be sort of disgusted in them? You see, that, that's, that's, the, that's the, the sting in religion. If you work for your salvation and find your identity in your ability to work, to earn right relationship with the Father, then you're going to look down your nose and despise those who don't work. If you work hard, and you find, but not only work hard, but find your identity and your salvation in working hard, then you're going to despise and look down at those who don't work hard. Always. In other words, part of the older brother syndrome, you know, in, in this parable, is that superiority. That superiority and looking down on others who don't work as hard as I do who are not as deserving as I am because I feel I've been slaving away and I've, I've, I've actually put my father in my debt. My dad owes me. Right? Can you believe that? But that's what through religion, dead religion, we often do. And then like the older brother, we speak to the father so disrespectfully when we, when we feel he's not giving us what we deserve and what we've earned. We say, look, you all this day, don't, don't you see what I'm doing for you? You owe me. And not only does it alienate us from the Father and, and, and break down relationship with the Father, but it alienates us from our brothers. It alienates us from our younger brothers. And we cannot actually receive them because we feel we're better than them. Because we've earned it. We've deserved it. We've worked for it. What kind of a community will we be 
if we allow God to strip away all this old brotherness, all this dead religion, all this trying to work for and earn our salvation, what kind of a community will we be? What kind of a reception will younger brothers receive amongst us? We'll celebrate them like the Father does, like Jesus, the true older brother does. See, Jesus receives that, that accusation. He associates with sinners and, you know, eats with them. Jesus receives that as a compliment. Can our detractors compliment us like that? What kind of a community are we? What kind of a community should we be? Surely we should be the same community of grace. That receives people, even from the pigsty, to come and be part of the family and celebrates them. Our true older brother, Jesus, did that for us. How can we not do that for others? How can we not do it? How can we not reflect the Father's heart in this? So I want to I just hold up this vision of the community we can be to you. Now it's messy, because younger brothers are messy. We know because we're younger brothers too. <laughs> younger brothers love Joburg. Many younger brothers come here because uh, this is the big bad city where you come to come and make money and enjoy yourself, to come and get away from the Father's, you know, rules and regulations and where you come and lose your inhibitions. So many younger brothers here. But what kind of a community are we going to be? Let me just put something else out there. If, 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 if I'm an older brother and I see my salvation as doing the right things, working to earn the Father's favor. In other words, salvation is behavior modification. I have to change my behavior to please the Father so he'll accept me. Then I'm going to try and do behavior modification on everyone else who comes in as well. And then someone who doesn't yet understand the gospel and doesn't necessarily even believe in Jesus yet comes into church and I'm going to try and get them to stop smoking. Right? Because that to me is salvation. It's, it's how you change your behavior. But if I, like a younger brother, have experienced the gospel, the grace of God, where I was first accepted, and then and saved, and then as a result of that, my behavior started changing in the right direction. I'm going to first say, listen, I, I don't care about smoking. I don't care about, because all of us have sins, right? I don't care about those first and foremost. I want to get the gospel to you. Because when you are saved through the gospel, it's changed, not from the outside in like religion, but from the inside out. See, that's the difference between religion and the gospel. The religion always tries and changes you to change you from the outside in. Change your behavior so you can be accepted. The gospel changes you from the inside out. It changes your heart. The love of God melts your heart. Changes your very desires so that now you want to please the Father. You're no longer trying to do the things that the Father wants you to because you're trying to earn His favor. You're now, want, you're now doing the things that the Father wants you to because you already have His favor. 
because you're already loved by him. And because you're so grateful that he loves you, an unworthy sinner who is not even worthy to be his son, but yet you are. You say, God, I just I don't want to do anything for you. I, I know I can never repay what you're doing for me. But I just want to love you in a little way. I want to love you back. Let's be such a community. Let's be such a people that are so radically changed by the good news of the gospel. Remember what I always say? The gospel, the word gospel means good news, not good advice. It's good news about what has been done to save you, not good advice about what you must do to save yourself. Right? And if you allow the gospel into your heart, it will change you. Your behavior will change. But it'll change from the inside out. It'll change because your heart has changed. And you will start already this side of eternity experiencing a profound sense of homecoming. Of I belong. This is my family. I belong here. And even though I experience it imperfectly this side of eternity, I know one day I'm going to experience it perfectly. It's going to be consummated. Thanks for listening to this message from Shofar Johannesburg. May the grace you receive produce God's greatest glory and your greatest good. For more information and sermons, please visit our website at www.shofar.joburg.com.